Welcome to episode 15 of Learn Me Right. Today we're speaking with Dr. Lisa Dive. Welcome, Lisa, and thank you so much for speaking with us today. Thanks so much for having me. Could we start by you telling us a little bit about your current role and current work? Yeah, sure. So um, at the moment and for hopefully some time. Um, I work at UTS, um, the University of Technology in Sydney, and my role there is as a lecturer in the Graduate School of Health, where I teach in the genetic counselling discipline. Um, although I always make sure I point out I'm not a genetic counsellor myself, um, but I have been involved with this amazing genetic counselling program at UTS for several years since it started. And um, I teach ethics throughout uh, several different subjects in that program. And also I teach research to our students and I do my own bioethics research, which focuses on ethical aspects of genetics and genomics. So thank you so much. I have some rapid fire questions for you. The first okay. one is what are your pronouns? My pronouns are she and her. Thank you. What is your coffee order or hot drink order? So my coffee is a strong flat white with lactose-free milk. I like the word strong there. I wholeheartedly yeah. agree. Extra shot is very important. <laughs> yes. um, what is the highlight of your year so far? Oh, look, in terms of a work highlight, something I'm really looking forward to is a um, workshop which actually relates to the paper that I'll be talking about today um, at the Fondation Brochère, if I, I think that's the correct, the Brochère um, Institute in Geneva has is, is a bioethics institute and I'm very fortunate to have been invited to a workshop there to look at the concept of severity um, with people from around the world who do um, normative ethics work in that area. So um, wow. very excited about that. Absolutely fair. That sounds phenomenal. I cannot wait to hear how it goes. Uh, one last question. If you were at karaoke, what would you sing? Look, I would probably go to great pains to avoid singing or <laughs> even attending karaoke. <laughs> um, if really cornered, um, I would probably show my age and go with something like something from you too, but um, I would really prefer not to. <laughs> Noted. We will do our best to not pressure or corner you into karaoke at if you come to the ABLE conference this year. Great. <laughs> okay, awesome. So thank you so much. It was lovely to get to know you a little bit with those rapid fire questions. But let's move on to the substantive part of the podcast. And I know that you're going to talk to us about a particular paper that's been published recently. Mm -hmm. It would be great if for our first question, you could tell us a little bit about the research problem that that paper was investigating and what sort of broad area or topic you were looking at in that paper. Yeah, sure. So this paper came out of a project, uh, uh, sorry, uh, a big program of research known as McKenzie's Mission, which is an Australian federally funded pilot program that was looking at how reproductive genetic carrier screening could be introduced in Australia. Um, it was a sensational program, a really, um, it, it has come about as a result of uh, you know, decades of advocacy, particularly from the parents um, of a baby called Mackenzie who passed away from spinal muscular atrophy because they, neither of them knew um, that they were both the carrier for a very, quite a rare but a devastating genetic condition that neither of them had had in their family. And so they were quite shocked by the fact that they could carry this thing and not know about it and why they weren't offered testing to find out about that. And so they advocated for um, 
such testing to become more widely available, joined up with clinicians who work, geneticists and others um, and other patient advocates who have worked in this space for a long time. And this kind of movement of um, sort of, I guess, interest in the area, coupled with an interest in genomics from Greg Hunt, who was the um, health minister at that time, um, came about and led to the McKenzie's mission. So that program offered reproductive genetic carrier screening to nearly 10,000 Australian couples who don't necessarily have a background of having a genetic condition in their family. So um, people who were thinking of um, planning a family or who might have been early in a pregnancy could have this testing to see if they together were at an increased chance of having a child um, or future children with genetic conditions. So as part of that program of research, there was a bioethics stream, which I was fortunate enough to work on together with Professor Ainsley Newson, who was the bioethics lead on McKenzie's mission. And so as part of the bioethics, researching the bioethical aspects of offering a carrier screening test widely across a whole population, one of the big issues that we thought was really important from an ethical perspective is the criteria um, among the criteria for including a condition in a screening program like that is um, that we should look for severe genetic conditions, not just not. I mean, the idea is that you shouldn't look for a mild condition that in order to warrant screening at a preconception or early prenatal stage, we should be looking for severe conditions. So if you're offering a test that is designed to help people planning a family with their reproductive decision making and provide information which is going to be valuable to them in their reproductive decision making, it's more likely that information about a severe genetic condition will be useful to them in that context. So that's the purpose of carrier screening is to provide useful information. And there are a range of other reasons why um, it's important to restrict that kind of approach program to um, severe conditions. And we've published a range of other things um, in this area. So I won't go into, uh, into too many rabbit holes, but we came to understand that severity is an important factor, but then it's also really difficult to define what is a severe genetic condition. And so we started digging into the conceptual background of that concept and that program of um, research continues, but our first severity paper is, um, is one that sort of looked at what does severity mean in the context of a screening program like this. So I just wanted to clarify, um, that was incredibly helpful. I knew nothing about your project before now. So thank you very much for being very clear. Um, I just wanted to clarify that when we're talking about genetic conditions, it's really important um, from, from what you've said, because it gives information about who the person is going to be and what kind of life they might have. Mm -hmm. um, and this is, of course, always going to be important information in reproductive decision making. Um, but secondly, that the information we're looking, it's not just everything about who this person is going to be it's limited to like pathological related conditions not like are we both a carrier for blue eyes and red hair <laughs> it's it's a very restricted uh group of uh, uh genetic conditions that tend towards the severe end of pathology yeah that's exactly right so a screening program like this um I mean, one of the things when you offer something across a whole population, you have to offer generally the same thing to everybody, regardless of their family history and their ancestry and things like that. So you want to choose 
um, conditions that are going to be useful for everyone for their reproductive decision making. So there are some things that are very clearly on the list. So something like what um, Mackenzie Casella passed away from spinal muscular atrophy type one is there's no ambiguity that that is an absolutely devastating, heartbreaking condition that will always limit the life of um, a person who is born with it and is always going to cause a great deal of suffering um, for that family. So conditions like that, and there are some that are right up at that end of the spectrum, are clearly warranted to screen for. Um, but then there are milder conditions that are have significant implications for a person's life, but may not be considered severe. And there's a wide range. You can think of it as a spectrum. So one of my colleagues on this paper, Lucinda Freeman, did her PhD research looking at um, non-syndromic deafness in the context of carrier screening, because that is something which there was a big question mark over whether it should be included or not. And maybe you um, might like to get Lucinda on the podcast and ask her because she did some fascinating research with the deaf community and with um, a range of different stakeholders to um, look at perspectives on whether a condition like that should be included. But generally, um, it is, yes, looking at the more severe end of the spectrum of genetic conditions. It's really interesting that you point, um, <clears throat> I know Ruthie has a question, so I'll promise Ruthie you can go next. Um, it's really interesting that you talk about the spectrum because um, some of my research has been also about where there's a spectrum of things and it gets really blurry in the middle and how do you know which side of the fence to sit on when. Um, mm. So I was wondering if you could speak a little bit more about distinguishing milder conditions, um, you know, so, something that might delay uh, or happen later in a person's life. So they might get 50 years of a normal, normal, healthy, in quotation marks, lifestyle before a condition um, uh, realizes or actualizes in the person, something potentially like Parkinson's or maybe Huntington's, I'm not entirely sure. But then what you're describing is severe. So like the, the prime example being the skeletal muscular spinal muscular um, atrophy or atrophy. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. So there's lots of different ways of looking at how to draw that cutoff line. So there's been some really interesting work out of a group in America where they identified lots of different dimensions of severity and actually built an algorithm for assessing the severity of a genetic condition. So that's something we talk about in this paper. They, so there's, um, physical impairment, mental impairment, might be something like degree of suffering. There's other um, attempts of categorizing conditions have looked at things like the degree of medical intervention that is required across the lifespan. Um, there's whether the condition is life limiting or not, um, whether it is early onset or later onset. So these are all different sort of factors that you can rate conditions on. And then you can almost rank them. So there are algorithms that will rank and categorize conditions as, you know, mild, moderate, severe, um, and maybe different stages. There might be five or so categorizations. But one issue that we have with those kinds of categorizations is they're all quite clinical. They look at the clinical features predominantly. Um, some have attempted to incorporate more of the psychosocial aspects like the requirement for medical interventions, which might be burdensome on a whole family and require travel time and intrusion on other aspects of life like schooling and so on. But um, mostly they focus on the clinical presenting features of a 
genetic condition. And something that's really important that there's some really interesting qualitative research being done in um, different parts of the world is that the perspective on how severe a condition is will differ depending on who is making that determination of whether it's a severe condition or not. And so that could be a clinician who works with people who have a particular condition. They will have a very good understanding of the condition and they'll have views about what constitutes a severe form of that condition. But then an individual who lives with that condition might not consider that it is actually that severe in terms of its impact on their life because it's just they've integrated that condition into their identity. This, there's some lovely research coming out of the UK where people with um, milder forms of spinal muscular atrophy have actually adapted. It's the only reality they've ever known. It's part of their identity. It doesn't, they don't consider that it adversely impacts their quality of life that much. Um, so there's different ways that and, you know, family members of people like that will have different views on how severe a condition is compared to treating clinicians. So perspective and lived experience is something that matters a lot in determinations of how severe a genetic condition is. So it becomes even harder than you think to draw that line. <laughs> That's absolutely fascinating. And I think my research is about voluntary sister dying and people with lived experience. So my question was actually going to be about that. You mentioned your colleague Lucinda's work and sort of speaking with particular stakeholders. Um, I wondered whether that was something that was done more broadly in the McKenzie's mission study and in this particular paper when you were determining severity. Was there sort of a range of people that you spoke to um, in order to kind of get their perspectives on how this word should be defined? Um, well, the the research that I've been involved in on severity has sort of come later as it emerged that it was a really important concept. In terms of choosing the conditions, um, to include in the McKenzie's mission screening panel. That actually happened before I started working on the project. So I can't speak with a great deal of authority, but I know that there was a um, there was a committee that a gene selection committee that included community representation of um, people with family experience of genetic conditions, as well as um, other range of a whole range of different stakeholders. Yeah. Um, I have another question. <laughs> so my question is, there seems to be this problem with how do we define um, severity? We we appear to have a descriptive use of the word in that there appears to be an objective way to define a severe genetic condition, but that may not actually be entirely true because it entirely depends on who like who has that condition and how they feel about it, which is completely valid. So I guess we were wondering what what have you found? Uh, what were your conclusions about this this definition of the word severity and the impact this could have in Australia? Yeah, so that's a great question, and it's really important at this time. I think as Australia is really grappling with how we're going to implement reproductive genetic carrier screening at a wide scale, because there is quite a bit of appetite to get it up and running in Australia. Um, so one of the things I would really emphasise is that severity needs to be treated differently at the sort of at the policy level when you're thinking about how to design a program that is going to be suitable to offer across a population widely. So that's 
one context in which you have to have a particular idea of severity, but you have to treat severity differently when it comes to that more micro level of the way that individuals and families make decisions about whether to participate in screening and then also what to do if they have a um, either a preconception increased chance of having a having children with a condition or if they've got a prenatal diagnosis of a genetic condition and are trying to decide what to do about that. So at the policy level, I think it's really important to be quite cautious um, and err on the side of not giving information about conditions that might be quite variable in their presentation, because that is not going to be fit for purpose. That's not going to help people make reproductive decisions. It's just going to cause them a lot of stress and worry and not know what to do with that. Um, and there is some, you know, we've worked on this research has also worked very closely with genetic counsellors who have done um, research with families who've had quite ambiguous results from carrier screening and it's quite distressing and confusing. So um, at the policy and program design level, restricting a program to um, highly penetrant, well understood, well described genetic variants that are known to be um, pathogenic and associated with severe genetic conditions is most appropriate. But then if it comes to making a family or a couple or an individual making a decision about whether to participate in screening and particularly to make sense of a screening result that might have implications for their reproductive decisions, it's really important then to delve into that much richer understanding of what the condition is like, what it's like to live with a condition. And so it's important that people can have access to, um, you know, other people, other, you know, maybe um, information from or even ideally access to speak with families of people who've had that condition or people who still live with that condition um, and a wide range of perspectives and not limited only to the clinical perspectives on and the, you know, the statistical kind of side of what a condition looks like and maybe um, some of the maybe more positive aspects of um, the lives of people who have a condition like that and to see if it might be um, like how that knowledge can then factor into their conception of what they hope that their family might look like. I find that so interesting because, um, you know, from my understanding, uh, this sort of information is very clinical um, and it's been presented to me throughout my life in a very clinical manner. Like this is a genetic condition. This is the impact it has on your life. It impedes these capacities and these capacities and affects your thinking in this way. Um, but uh, the way you're just kind of describing it kind of got me thinking about this little story I saw somewhere. I think it's in a country in Scandinavia somewhere where you can go to a library and um, instead of getting a book out, you can get a person and you can hear their story and talk to them and ask them questions. And it kind of sounds like genetic counselling needs to be less focused on just the clinical understanding of, of the implications of, of a genetic condition and more mm. holistic, like that relational aspect. And you mm. could go and you could not rent out a family, but, <laughs> you know, like hear their story. And that actually sounds, that sounds really, hot, really, I don't know, sort of, it's sort of like common sense like why haven't we been doing this all along yeah I don't know I guess I don't know why um I can't, <laughs> I can't really answer that but I certainly know like we're seeing more and more of the genetic counseling profession a growing profession in Australia for sure um getting much more involved in the design of these kinds of programs and because genetic counselors you know the genetics is one component of their training but it's also families and relationships is the absolute bread and butter of their work and so um that kind of thing is um 
is definitely something that genetic counsellors do um, do look at in a really rich way, I would say. I love that library of renting out a person. That's excellent. <laughs> Thank you. It wasn't my idea. I um, would just like to say give credit where credit is due. Um, but, yeah, it, it sounds really wholesome. <laughs> that is so fascinating. And I think um, for me, as someone who doesn't have a science background, I think what you said about um, choosing what information to give is it's a really important consideration because I think that there's sort of two parts to it isn't there there's like the the government and policy solutions and then there's the translation into like the ways that people can actually understand so I think you sort of touched on and Sinead please butt in if you want to answer a question because I I know that this is much more up your area of expertise um but so what are some solutions for us as we go forward in terms of genetic counseling how can governments or policy be put in place to assist this happening at a wider level. I don't know you've already kind of touched on some of this as well, but it'd be interesting to hear more about what you think about how we approach this going forward. Yeah, look, I think just that, um, I mean, in terms of designing carry screening for Australia, which is very much happening at the moment, um, it's about including that wide range of stakeholder perspectives and right at the policy level, which I think Mackenzie's mission has actually done really well. It's um, sort of consumer driven and clinician backed in a sense um, that the researchers leading the project were um, clinicians, but it was very much driven by, um, you know, people who are affected personally by genetic conditions. So I think that that is a great start and the the richness of the data that has been gathered in Mackenzie's mission, really looking at that and can, that ongoing consultation and involvement of um, people who have lived experience of genetic conditions into the decision-making process of what a program is going to look like, what should be in, what should be out, how is the information framed, what kind of information do people need to make a decision about whether they even want to participate in screening. That's really important because when you're offering this to any Australian who wants it, then you have to be able to have a kind of an off the shelf approach. You have to have a bit of a one size fits all approach. You can't offer a genetic counselor to everyone who is trying to work out if carrier screening could be right for them. So you have to have really rich and nuanced um, information that is going to help people make a decision which is congruent with their, with their values and going to be beneficial for them in their reproductive um, planning, I guess. So it sounds like there are a couple of um, ethical issues there, one being like the, the question of justice. We just don't have the resources to provide everyone with a genetic counsellor undergoing reproductive decision making, mm -hmm. um, which obviously it's a practical concern. So <laughs> we'll maybe put that to the side. The other one, um, I just wanted to uh, bring up the idea that any sort of policy um, input from the government into individual reproductive decision making, which could lean them towards um, not having a certain type of person, naturally raises eugenic concerns. Um, and I was just wondering if you would like the opportunity to either dispel some myths about how this <laughs> relates to this context, but I thought for, you know, the devil's advocate, I think maybe we should just briefly bring this up. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, this is not, you're not the first person to make that connection. <laughs> um, so we've also, we've got a paper about eugenics in the context of Mackenzie's mission and where we specifically address this critique. So I'm happy to provide you with a link to that. Amazing. <laughs> so there are aspects of eugenics. Um, eugenics is basically, um, so it is 
applying the science of heredity to improve the genetics of a population group, right? It doesn't sound inherently evil, but we broke down and um, analyzed, you know, obviously it's got very negative connotations. And we actually concluded, you just, you can't use the term um, eugenics. There have been attempts to rehabilitate it as liberal eugenics and laissez-faire eugenics. We New think that- eugenics. Oh, yeah, exactly. <laughs> It, we, we don't think that is going to ever fly, but what we did look at really closely is what were the actual ethical wrongs com committed by those um, completely abhorrent eugenics programs of particularly the early 20th century that we all know about? And um, how do modern day programs like um, reproductive genetic carrier screening in our kind of society and in other um, countries around the world that are piloting or offering it in different ways. How, what are the differences? What are the ethically salient differences between those, um, those kinds of programs? And there's two main ones that we think are really, really important. So one is you made the um, point about um, a program like this could influence what kind of people are born or what kind of um, future people of future children parents choose to have based on a government program, right? So that the eugenic programs that were really ethically problematic, they had a very narrow definition of what is an a, what is a desirable person. So they wanted very specific characteristics. And, and um, I mean, it, they were also based in bad science. They thought that, you know, they had ideas about, you know, things like poverty and mental illness and all sorts of things that were, um, they thought were genetic traits, but they, they also had a very narrow and specific idea of what was an ideal kind of a human being that they were going for. Whereas programs, I mean, the government is not telling people what kind of, um, what kind of embryos to select or what kind of um, characteristics to to look for or a program like reproductive genetic carrier screening is primarily aiming to inform reproductive decision making if parents would like to avoid having a child with a genetic condi condition that is really associated with a great degree of suffering yeah so that's why we have a very broad and inclusive definition of what is a desirable person that incorporates disability and difference and all kinds of, you know, different physical characteristics and different, you know, neurological diversity, all those kinds of things. So we have a broad and inclusive um, ideal of what is a desirable kind of a person. So, and then the second main way that the what we think of as the hideous eugenics programs of the past went wrong is that the kinds of methods that they employed, that they considered acceptable to use in persuading their populations to have particular kinds of children. So um, it's a lot about coercion um, and it was, you know, all these sort of persuasive measures that we would consider ethically questionable, but right down to things like involuntary sterilizations and, um, and in some cases even worse. So in a sort of a liberal democracy like we live in, um, we generally think of um, programs like carrier screening as providing information that allows people to exercise their own reproductive autonomy. Um, and so it's really important that participation is voluntary. So that's about providing information um, that allows people to decide if screening is right for them, if they even want that kind of information and to make it easy for them to say no. Um, so a big part of it as well is that realizing, recognizing the capacity for a 
um, government funded program like reproductive genetic carrier screening, that that kind of a program might have the capacity to shift societal norms around reproduction. So being aware of the fact that people might start to feel that it is the right thing to do to take up an offer of carrier screening, that it's what a responsible parent would do, um, what a good parent would do. So avoiding framing the program in those kinds of terms, ensuring that people can make a genuinely voluntary choice to, whether to participate, and then also what to do following a screening result. If they don't want to take any action based on that information, then that should be an acceptable pathway for them and they should be supported to do that. It, it sounds like from what you said about how this study even started it was very much from the bottom up which is exactly opposite to historical um the historical context that you just mentioned people who yeah. did have this experience and suffered greatly from it and then as a result of that sort of advocated for this this program and this research so it's a very different context but yeah very good to to talk about that because I'm sure a lot of people do have that sort of concern when talking about this area especially um if they don't have that kind of ethical background, all these kind of ideas float around in your head about, oh, this seems ethically wrong, but can't really nail down exactly why and, and draw that distinction. So that was a really interesting discussion. Thank you so much for taking us through that and, and for sharing that link to your paper, which we will definitely upload to the podcast. Okay, thanks. So um, thank you for answering my devil's advocate of a question. <laughs> you did so wonderfully. How handy that you've published an entire paper on this. So thank you so much for that. Um, this leads kind of perfectly into our last question, which is what should the individual know about this particular research area or what knowledge should they be armed with when going into the public space or, or alternatively something they can do to help um, promote ethical or lawful behaviour in this scenario? Hmm. That is a really interesting question. So I think um, oh, there's lots of different ways of answering that question. I think just to be aware that the determination of what is a severe health condition is not a straightforward thing. It's not an easy yes or no question. And being tolerant of different perspectives and understanding that people can have differing views depending on the experiences they've had in their life, the kind of work that they do, the kind of um, people that they have in their family, you know, all those kinds of things. And also I think, um, remembering that their own experience is valid if they if a person's perspective on a health condition um, whether they have it or someone in their family has it or someone that they know um, if that differs from a health professional's perspective still to feel that their own perspective remains valid and um, and to know that there we, we have to find ways of working with this diversity of um, like this kind of rich diversity of different perspectives on what constitutes a severe health condition. I love what you said at the start and it reminded me of something Rick Rubin writes which is that listening is suspended belief and I think in this scenario, um, it's really important, especially for me and from someone who comes from a family without um, genetic conditions. So when we're discussing this, you know, suspend my belief, put that aside and listen to what others have to say, especially those with lived experience in this scenario, and then validate how they felt the experience was for them. Mm. Um, that That is actually just beautiful advice, Lisa. Thank you so much. <laughs> Um, I don't have any more questions. You have definitely comprehensively answered all of my annoying peppery questions. Do you have any more questions? No, not for me either. But thank you so much, Lisa. That was fascinating. And um, really appreciate you speaking with us today. Oh, thank you so much for having me. I've really enjoyed it.
Alrighty. Um, thank you one last time. Um, and hopefully we'll see you in November for the ABLE conference. Yes, I hope so. <laughs> awesome. <laughs> Goodbye. Thanks. Bye. Bye.